If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Now, if you look throughout history, throughout the history of our, our nation, uh, there, at a time in our nation, there was much more of an understanding of God's Word. There was a more literal uh, literacy of God's Word. Uh, there was more of, a, uh, more of a sympathy for God's Word. We have schools like Harvard and Yale that were originally Puritan schools when they were founded. We have schools such as Princeton, which was originally a Presbyterian church, and many other rich Christian histories from many of our schools. Uh, many of, and I was even, as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I uh, was thinking about even just here in Michigan. And if you were to drive around the metropolitan Detroit area, how many churches are no longer here? You know, a couple years right after we, we started here, uh, the Lord called us here. I remember going to an escape room with some people from the church. And it's up in Pontiac. And when we got up there, I realized that the escape room is actually in the old uh, Baptist church, First Baptist Church of Pontiac, the oldest Baptist church in the state of Michigan. It was really interesting. And so I walked in and I told Liz, it still smells like an old Baptist church. (laughs) If you've ever been in an old Baptist church, you know what I'm talking about. And why do I bring that up? I bring that up because you look at around us and and sin is pervading throughout history, right? Sin pervades. It's pervading culture. There's never been a time where sin has not impacted our culture. But unfortunately, we as Christians, the church, has chosen over time more and more to live according to social status than the dictates of culture. And taking it really more personal, we are, the church, we are the church individually and are falling prey to letting the cultural norms seep into our hearts and create cultural idols which are subtly replacing God in our lives. Oftentimes we don't realize it, but if we're honest with ourselves this morning, there's areas in our lives where we've allowed idols to creep in. There's things that we actually place at a, at a higher priority than God himself. See, Christians are slowly compromising and being weaned away from the one and true God. It's not a something that just happens overnight. The many churches throughout, and I have a document in my office that have letters from pastors from churches in the metropolitan Detroit area that no longer exist. And it saddens my heart I don't know all the reasons for all of that. There's probably a variety of it. But when you just think about nationally, there are less men going into ministry. There are less churches being started here in our own country. And I'm not here, this message is not about planting churches this morning. Though I think that's important. It's about us individually look, taking a deep look at our own lives and saying, Where, what sin is in my life? What sin in my life is holding me back and, and, and causing me to walk away from the Lord in some way, shape, or form? Or not walking in line with who God is and what He wants for me in my life? So 
See, similar to Israel, the church is to be a large beacon of light that magnifies God. If you look, why did God choose Israel? He chose Israel, the purpose for what Israel is to be. Why did he have all the laws and all the... If you've been taking Andy's class, he's done a great job of walking through a lot of this. But why is it? It was to glorify God. It was to show the world who God is. Now, Israel and the church aren't the same thing, but God has a similar purpose for the church. It's to joyfully magnify Christ. It's to raise and, and, and bring an awareness to the world of who God is. It's to bring glory to God. And we cannot bring glory to God when there is active, unconfessed sin in our lives. And so we come to Jeremiah chapter 2. And if you have headings in your Bibles, uh, I know mine, do, mine says Judah's apostasy. Judah here, uh, Jeremiah is called. By, in chapter 1, we see Jeremiah's call. And in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. And so Jeremiah is called to go to Judah to proclaim the word of the Lord. And this is one of the most discouraging chapters in all of the Bible. <laughs> There's nothing positive to pull out of this chapter. It literally describes Judah's apostasy. They're walking away from God. And it's actually pretty graphic. And so Judah, though, though they were part of God's chosen people, and they were still standing, even though the northern kingdom had, had fallen, and they were just as wicked, not more. The main issue that we're going to see here is, is the fall, the, the wickedness of Judah, the wickedness of Israel. And really the key textual principle that we see here. This is just, the, just taking the text and looking at what, is, what do we see the principle of text here. Jeremiah is commanded to proclaim to Israel her departure from Yahweh and the ensuing judgment. This is what Jeremiah is told to do. Now, I would not have wanted to have been Jeremiah. The call on Jeremiah's life was not an encouraging, I mean, from a human perspective. He's being called to go preach to a people that isn't going to repent. And so our primary take-home truth, and I kind of changed them a little bit, the wording a little bit today, the main idea, I broke into two different aspects. First of all, this, our home, the truth to take home this morning is that God's justice and hatred for sin demands God's punishment for sin. God hates sin. A lot of the things that we justify in our own lives, that we try to... To, to maybe even overlook in our own lives. Things that we might not want to call sin. God hates sin, period. It doesn't matter what we view it as. There's no justification biblically for sin. And so the primary application from this 
is that God must be your life's priority or you will become like what you idolize. And we'll see that from the example of the nation of Israel. Really, the outline this morning is just outlining this chapter. I typically try to make my outline with application points, but really this is more of a textual outline this morning showing what, what uh, the, the nation of Israel. And so then we'll take application from that. But God must be your life's priority or you will become like what you idolize. Carl, Pastor, and I are reading a book that, that has been talking about this. In the book, the, the author goes deep into a lot of text in this concept and what, tracing through the Old Testament how often, how many times we see really the nation of Israel, those when idols are worshipped, they become like what they worship. So let's look at the passage this morning. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we see that the Lord reminds His children of their once youthful vibrancy spiritually. Look at verse 1. right there in the middle of it where it says, Thus says the Lord in verse 1, it says, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest, or the first fruits. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. In other words, those who attacked the nation of Israel, there was there was punishment, there was judgment that came on the people who went after the nation of Israel. And Jeremiah is, is, is speaking for the Lord here, is telling Israel, I'm telling Judah, saying, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth. You say, well, didn't they complain in the wilderness? They did. But a lot of that stretch, they weren't struggling with idolatry necessarily. They were struggling, yes, with trusting God, Outside of the incident at Mount Sinai, there wasn't a whole lot of falling into idolatry. They were struggling with trusting God that He's going to get them to where they need to go and, and, and not knowing what that is. It wasn't until later that Israel decided to, you know what? We're done with this. We need to look at, let's go over here. Oh, there's this, and there's one commentary that said that and in that area, there was some 256 gods, false gods, at the time that Jeremiah was writing, with all the different nations. But we see in verse 2, there was a devotion to Yahweh. They had a devotion. See, what sin does is it pulls away your devotion. It pulls away your devotion. The covenant that God made with Israel was that as they obeyed Him, they as a nation would be blessed, but as they disobeyed Him, God promised that judgment would be delivered. And here in Jeremiah 2, we see the manifestation of Israel's failure to keep her end of the covenant. See, God didn't fail Judah. God did not fail Israel. They failed God. They failed God. See, God never fails you. God never walks away from you. We choose to live in sin and walk in opposition to God. 
Because that is exactly what sin is, the opposition to God. We see they had an unfailing devotion. Not only was it in their youth, it's kind of like a history lesson, kind of what, we, what Stephen preached and what we just heard, read in Acts. But there's an unfailing devotion in verse 2. God remembers when Israel followed him with a dedication and devotion that was loyal and unfailing. There was a devoted love. The Lord compares the early love of Israel for him as a bride's love to her groom. We see that they were set apart. They were his first fruits. Israel was Yahweh's first fruits, therefore, they were under his protection. They're under his protection. And just setting up this, this, this picture for us of the nation of Israel, because it is scary, there are scary results to sin. And ultimately, what we see in this text is that it is the punishment of God. God's punishment. And Israel in this chapter, we see, was so far gone, and then we'll see it more specifically in a moment, but it was so far gone in their sin that they literally were almost calloused to what God was doing and the punishment that God was allowing in their lives. You know, just as the, many of the Ivy League schools and many of the schools that I mentioned at the beginning have, have walked away, They've neglected the devotion that that was once thriving in their lives. They've walked away from it. You know, if we're not careful, we can lose that loyalty to God as well. It's important that we, that we build these, these biblical walls, these walls, and allow the Spirit of God to build things up and around and let God be our fortress, let God be our protection and trust Him and live for Him and obey Him, and live a loyal life to God. Because God's love for you is loyal. Throughout the whole Old Testament, there is a word that is used to describe God's love, and it is that idea of a loyal love. Where is your loyalty today? What's pulling you a different direction? Now, we, our idols look a lot different than Israel's. Our idols that I know of, looking out about, I doubt any of us have physical, structural things in our houses that we're literally worshiping two, three times a day. I doubt that's the case here this morning. Maybe it is. I don't know. But more than likely, it's not the primary way where we have idols in our lives. And yes, could I, have a li- could I list this morning on the, on the screen, try to list every idol that c- could be imagined in the 21st century? It'd be a long list. Because simply an idol is just anything that takes precedence over God. Takes priority over God the commands of God, the character of God. What about your own personal comforts? Are you more loyal to your own comfort than you are to God? Are you more devoted to your own 
alone time than you are to, to the Lord. God's Word is the source of our power and to sustain complete loyalty to God. Where is this in your, in your priority? Where is this? If I were to take a poll this morning, how much time during the week you spend meditating, reading, and contemplating God's Word, what would you write down? See, the Lord reminds His children of their once youthful vibrancy, their spiritual vibrancy. Second, the Lord spells out to Israel the details of their unfaithfulness. And this goes all the way down from verse 4 all the way down through verse 19. I'm not going to walk through every single one of these verses. But beginning in verse 4, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and walked after emptiness, and I became empty? God is saying to them, What did you find in me? Why in the world would you walk away from me? What did I do to cause you to walk away? And you can see really, there's uh, many of the commentaries really frame this in more of a, a, a judicial type of argument going on between God and, and Judah. Verse 6, They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt, I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land. And my, inherit, and my inheritance you made an abomination. Israel had taken what God had, had set aside for them for the purpose of glorifying God, and they turned it and they turned it into an abomination. In Jeremiah 2, 4 through 9, down through verse 9, we see the Lord compares Israel with the conduct of Jehovah to Israel. In these verses, the Lord asks questions while stating questions that Israel's fathers had not asked. In these questions, the Lord is showing Israel that their fathers and now them do not even ask or think about what God, about God. In verse 7, it says, They turned his fruitful land into defilement. Israel had taken, really the only answer to this is that God didn't change in his relationship to Israel. Israel changed in their relationship to him. In fact, if you look at verse 5, and walked after emptiness and became empty. They became like what they worshipped. Worshippers become like the objects they worship. And what does this tell us? It says that God views idols as worthless and vain. There's no value in them. They aren't going to bring you contentment. According to 1 Kings 16.13, it says, For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Eli his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel sin, 
provoking the Lord of God of Israel to anger with their idols. God hates sin. He hates the adultery, spiritual adultery that Israel commits, and he hates the spiritual adultery we commit. 1 Corinthians 8.4 says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. See, idols are worthless. They're, they're of no value. They carry no substance or reality. Idols cannot give you life. They're dead. There's no life in them. But yet Israel's attention was directed to all of the benefits the nation uh, enjoyed at God's hand. They, they enjoyed all these things, yet they are unmindful of His presence. They, they wanted God's blessing, but they didn't want God's methods. They wanted God's blessing, but they didn't want God's character. They didn't want God Himself. Israel still desired to not turn to God, but rather turn to idolatry and immoral lifestyles. They chose to ignore what God had given them. Verses 8, it starts, and 9, it starts going into not only were they as a nation, but their leaders were leading in idolatry. Their quote-unquote spiritual leaders were leading in it. We see the priests and the rulers did not seek the Lord in their decision-making of the laws that were made and carried out. Verse 8, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. Sin does not bring any profit to your life. Stop seeking guidance for any, in places outside of God. Don't be like the priests and the rulers who sought to try to do things outside of God. Verse 9, Therefore, because of all this, God declares in verse 9 that He will bring judgment on them and their children and their children's children. Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your sons' sons, I will contend. That should scare us. We know from Scripture that, that God hates sin. And God disciplines us as believers. We'll get to that in a few moments. Specifically from the book of Hebrews. But there is punishment for sin. And oftentimes that punishment comes in the form of just the natural results of our sin. Verses 10 through 13, the Lord challenges them to go ahead and search all over the land and see if you can find a heathen nation that had changed their ancient gods. You know what's interesting? That Israel did something that no other nation did. They turned on their own God. You ever think of that when you think of the nation of Israel? All the other countries, they never actually forsook their gods. They never bailed on them. 
They've always trusted them for the most part. They've never turned against them and walked away from them. But the one nation who has the one true God as their God turned away from them. They acted more faithless than the pagans themselves. It's a heavy passage of Scripture. It's not a bright and cheery passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning. But I believe the Word of God wants us to understand the gravity of sin. It destroyed a nation. Now by God's grace, we know that God's going to continue to restore and, and, and He's going to restore the nation of Israel and, and all that goes through with what pastor's been preaching on Sunday nights. But even during that time, he deals really serious with sin, doesn't he? Thousands upon thousands of people die because of sin. It should give us pause to really evaluate our own hearts. Where are we? Jumping down to verse 14, we see then he walks through a few pictures pointing out the level of apostasy into which Israel had fallen. Look at verse 14, it says, Is Israel a slave or is he a home-born slave? Why has he become a prey? We see here that, that Israel had become a slave. It's kind of ironic that God delivered them from slavery, from bondage, hundreds of years prior to this. And now what, is, what, do they be, what are they becoming? They are now in bondage. And why is it? It's because of their sin. But we see that although the Lord had made Israel free, Jer reminded the people that they exchanged their freedom under God for idols. It's very similar to us as Christians today. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are free from being slaves to sin. And yet so often we turn around and we put ourselves under that bondage again and again and again and again. And what we're really saying is, God, you're not that, I don't need you. You're not that good. I've got this. I can figure life out on my own. This I enjoy more. I'll come back to you when I, I'm in a real bind. And Israel did that. Judah did that. They came back to the Lord, but they didn't come from a heart of repentance. They came from a heart of convenience. They understood the power of God. but they were treating God like a lucky rabbit's foot. Are you this morning going after what you want? After things that are worthless and non-sustaining? What are you seeking for your own spiritual nourishment? See, Israel was unfaithful. 
What area in your life this morning are you unfaithful to God? See, alternatives to God always lead to destruction. God uses man's own sin to bring about the painful consequences to their disobedience. In verse 19, look at verse 19. It says, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that, this, that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. See, the passage here in verse 19 is closing with a solemn warning about the evil and bitter consequences of abandoning the Lord. Living life without God, living life worshiping something else, idolizing something else, is only going to bring you frustration in life. Then we see in verses 20 through 28, we see that Israel continues to reject God and live in the attraction of the false gods around them. Reading through this passage and studying this just blows my mind. After God even says, there will be judgment on you, you are going to be punished. What does Israel do? Okay. And they keep on living in their sin. And he uses illustrations here of really how Israel was acting like what they were worshiping. He goes and he says, For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds. The idea of a yoke there is referring to oxen that are pulling a cart. He discusses the ox who is stubborn and rebellious and will not listen to its master. Are you stubborn this morning? Is God telling you something in your life on how, what you need to change and you're just being stubborn? Compares him to the harlot or the prostitute at the end of that verse, in fact, later on down in the passage, it says that the heathen nations were able to learn from them in this area. They had fallen into such horrible immorality. He compares them to a vine. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? The idea is they were just wild. They went after everything that they found. Whatever pleased them, they went after it. Is that you this morning? Are you like that? Is, is there something that pleases you and you just go after it? They were like a corrupt and wild vine that will not produce the fruit that God wants. Then we see in verse 22... Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me. You can do whatever you want to the outside of your life. You can walk into church every Sunday. 
You can walk around and, and visit people in the church. You can go to work around even the unsaved. And you can whitewash yourself. You can, you can scrub as hard as you want spiritually to try to, 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 to clean your facade. But it doesn't change your heart. It doesn't clean, clean the sin in your life. Verse 23 describes a young camel wandering aimlessly. The people denied running after idols. They, were, they would just continue to run. Look at the, what it says there. A young camel. And then verse 24, he compares him to a wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind and her passion. In the time of her heat, who can turn her away? All who seek her will not become weary. In her month, they will find her. He's comparing Israel to an animal going wild for a mate. You just go after what you want and just, you are just wild. You're going after it. There's no restraint in your life. You have this strong desire for what is not God. Verses 27 through 28 then expose the foolishness of idolatry. Look at 27. Who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth, for they have turned their back to me and not their face, but in the time of their trouble they will say, arise and save us. But where are your gods, which you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you in the time of your trouble. For according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. God turns it right back on them. And you can, I can just hear, to me, it, it's almost like, this is what you wanted, why are you coming to me? Almost like an a aspect of humor almost to a degree. With, with seriousness behind it. Saying, why are you coming to me? You, you didn't think I, I had enough for you before. So why are you coming to me now? You have all these gods, as many as your cities. Which shows the complete foolishness of idolatry. The complete emptiness and worthlessness of idolatry. What is attracting you and pulling you away from God? Because in verse, then the end of the chapter, we see that Israel continues to refuse to acknowledge their guilt. Again, they just want to live in their sin. They're not willing to admit the sin in their life. To acknowledge it before God. God chastened them many times for their sins. They're taken into captivity. You'd think they would have learned from their history of judges. (laughs) But they're right back doing what was right in their own eyes. They had rebelled against him. They had forgotten him. They lied to him. But yet they're claiming to be innocent. And that's what sin does. It distorts the mind. 
It's illogical. Sin doesn't make sense. And the neat thing about this passage, though, is then in chapter 3, we do see that God invites them to repent. God invites Judah to repent. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3, he says, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Praise the Lord, we serve a gracious God. And yes, this message is written to Israel, but you know the truth of the matter is that God's character doesn't change. And the gracious God that wanted to see Israel repent is the same gracious God that desires you and I to confess our sins before him because he is faithful and just to forgive us. See, the word confess simply means to acknowledge, to agree with God about your sin. We need to stop blaming God for our circumstances in our life that we've brought on ourselves because of sin in our life. Now, not every negative aspect of your life is there because of some sin that you've done, but oftentimes there are, that our consequences for sin are not going to make your life easy. They, they failed to acknowledge it. See, we place ourselves in a scary position when we allow sin to go unchecked in our lives. Living like our former selves is not walking worthy of the vocation wherewith we have been called. Ephesians 4.1 says, I, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus here, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, we, which you have been called. We need to stop being such a selfish people, an arrogant people, a people that is so caught up in the culture around us and living the way it just seems like, oh, that, that sounds like fun. Well, that might not be what, what is right. Stop living and allowing the sinful desires of your life to dictate how you live. Stop allowing certain things to distract you from making God number one in your life, period. Not in just areas of your life, but your life as a whole. And His commands and His precepts and His church. Hebrews 12, 5-11 goes through, and, and this is verse 5 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. We need to take God's discipline serious as Christians. It is not something to take lightly. It is not something to just treat flippantly. God will discipline you. It says, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. See, God's discipline tells us that he loves us. For Israel, the fact that God was using the prophet Jeremiah to proclaim to them, you know what, that tells them that God loves them. See, God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in God's holiness. 
Chapter 5, Hebrews 5.12.10. Hebrews 12.11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful, peaceful fruit of righteousness. So when there is sin in our lives, I know in my own life why I don't want to. When I feel the Spirit of God convicting me of sin in my life, you want me to tell you why I don't want to, to deal with it? Because it hurts. You're admitting to the one true God, to your heavenly Father, that you have failed spiritually. And none of us like to say we failed. And so really the scary results of sin are just that God's punishment in our lives. The judgment of God. And that should motivate us to live with a healthy fear and reverence before God. See, the Lord reminded Israel of their once spiritually youthful, vibrant lives. The Lord spelled out for them the details of their unfaithfulness. He, he, we see that even in the midst of all of that, Israel chose to continue to live in their sin time and time again. And not even acknowledge that they were wrong. Even as God is clearly stating, you are living in sin, they refuse to acknowledge it. See, God's justice and hatred for sin demands God's punishment of it. Sin does not go unchecked. He is a holy and just God. And for us this morning, we need to make God our life's priority so that we don't become like what we idolize. Sin is a scary thing. And we see the results of skin on a large scale with just sin being in the world all around us. And it's easy for us to think of it that way because it's not personal. But this morning I challenge you to get personal. I challenge you to really evaluate your own heart this morning. Say, God, what are the idols of my heart? What, what is in the way of me really having you number one in my life? Because we must make God a top priority in our life. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are. Lord, I pray that this morning we would allow the truth of your word and what we have looked at this morning to sink deep into our hearts, that we would take time today to truly evaluate our hearts. Say, God, what is it in my life that's become an idol? What is it that if I go unchecked, I'm going to become like this? So Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for your conviction in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.